You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. All right, well, we're going through the book of 1 Timothy as a church. It's our second week in the series, a series we're calling The Household of God. If you haven't already, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be in verses 3 through 7, the verses that Jules just read for us. And uh, as you're turning there and looking at the text, uh, I want us to consider, you know, it's, it's amazing the things we'll do to guard what we value. It's amazing the things we'll do to guard what we value. I, I was um, at the Apple store the other day, and I was looking at an iPhone. You ever just look at an iPhone, you're like, wow, this is so small. It's so sleek. It looks so good. But you never get to actually see the sleekness of the iPhone because it's always covered by this bulky case. You guys got auto boxes that you could kill a man with. Like, throw it, ah! You know, like, these things are huge. But it used to be, like, so nice and small. We guard what we value. I, you, I remember in high school, my friends would get, like, brand new Jordans. And they would start walking like ducks to protect their Jordans. You know, they, like, you see them walking through the hallways like this. Like, don't, don't even look at my Jordans. All right? One guy in high school actually stepped on his white Jordans, and he just, out of nowhere, punched me. He was so mad at me. I was like, yeah, I, I messed up your Jordans. I deserve that. I'm sorry. But, like, people will do crazy things to guard what they value. Just try and strap a kid in a car. It takes forever. Paper straws. Man, we love sea turtles because we're sipping our drink out of paper. <laughs> it's horrible, someone says. My point is, is if you value something, what do you do? You guard it. You guard what you value. And friends, the, the point of the text this morning is that God has given his church a treasure to guard. And it's called the gospel. You know, when you ask the question, what's the church supposed to look like? We looked at that last week in 1 Timothy 3. Like the penultimate verse in 1 Timothy says, the church is the household of God. It's a family. It's a home. But he also, at the end of that verse, says... What the home of God, the church is supposed to do, it's, it's supposed to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Buttress does not mean a woman who's a pain in the rear end. Buttress means solid defense. It means firm ground. The church is supposed to be a pillar or a defense of what is true. We guard the gospel. You and I, Paul says, in this text are to go to great lengths to address anything and everything that pulls us away from the gospel. Friends, Satan and the world is trying to do everything they can to get you to go away from the gospel. And the church's job is to lock us into this truth. Press in and let shape and mold us and change us. If we lose the gospel, we lose everything. And see, there are other things that seem really important that are important. Like prayer, leadership, missions, caring for the poor. And Paul gets to all these things eventually. But the first thing every church must do and must have is the gospel. And stop anything that dilutes us, that dilutes the gospel's beauty and its power. The local church is like the prong on which the diamond of the gospel shines. For all to see. And so God gives us two ways we are to guard the gospel as a church. We guard the gospel, number one, by confronting false teaching, and we guard the gospel, number two, by embodying gospel culture. The first point is like the gospel on defense, and the second point is the gospel guarding on, on offense. We guard the gospel on defense by confronting false teaching, we guard the gospel on offense by embodying gospel culture. Let's go point one. By confronting false, false teaching. So to give you some context of what's going on in this letter, the Apostle Paul is speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit to a church in the city called Ephesus. And if you remember, I shared this last week, this church is gathered together, kind of like we are right now, and they would just read this letter out loud. And this Ephesian church that's listening to this letter that Paul writes has a lot of similarities actually to our church. It's a young church plant with a young pastor, Hello. It's a city called Ephesus, which is a very diverse place like Baltimore. 
It has many uh, people groups and about 250,000 residents. And has, it's a city of, of great size, great power, and great wealth, similar to Baltimore City. And just like Baltimore City, the city of Ephesus, where this church is, it has, is surrounded by rampant idolatry. There are idols all throughout the city. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, when Paul preaches the gospel and people come to faith in Christ, there are lines of new Christians who bring their former magic books or sorcery books and throw them in a fire as a visible sign of their repentance. Like, I'm turning from this former way of life to Christ. It's kind of like when you went to youth group camp and you threw in your Britney Spears CDs and said, I'm done with this! And then five years later, you started listening again. Uh, <laughs> this city in Ephesus is about as holy as Baltimore City. It's not a very godly place. And it's a young church with a young pastor in a city that's hostile to the gospel. And these are Paul's first commands to Timothy in this church. Look at verse 3. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So Paul tells Timothy to stay in Ephesus, probably because Timothy's got his bags packed. He's ready to go. And you might be in the same place today. I'm ready to be done with Baltimore. I'm ready to be done with this church. This assignment for Timothy was too hard. These people were too difficult. This city was too lost, too secular. And maybe Timothy wanted to be done and move on to the next assignment. But Paul says, Timothy, stay. And like I mentioned last week, the reason he wants Timothy to stay is because the only way you can maximize your impact is if you grow roots. You, you change lives when you stay. And you're a tumbleweed, dead but always moving, when you keep moving around. Paul tells Timothy, say, stay. And what does he want him to do? End of verse 3. Stay so that you can charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So in this Ephesian church, there's this group or contingent of leaders who are teaching false doctrine. When we say false doctrine, that's a fancy way of saying uh, truths that are contrary to the gospel. You see, this is happening in the church. And today, just like in Paul's day... Just because God or church is on the sign outside, or just because the preacher is holding a Bible or has a Bible in his proximity, does not mean it's truth. It takes discernment. And we don't know specifically what this false teaching was that Paul is commanding Timothy to stop. We know it had some Jewish element to it. Apparently these false teachers were misapplying the law, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, saying that uh, you need to do these things and believe in Jesus to be saved. And what's happening is that it's leading, verse 4, to speculations amongst the church. Verse 6, it says vain discussions, basically Twitter. Uh, it's leading to a swerving and wandering away from the truth, verse 6. So the false teaching, which is wrong, is leading to a lot of talking and not a lot of doing. It's the kind of teaching that enjoys going nowhere. The teacher says, oh, it could be this, it could be that, it might even be this. And everyone in the room is enjoying what it could be and never actually gets to what it is. We never actually do anything. We sit in our little powwow and say, oh, this is fun. Paul tells Timothy, charge them to stop. This word charge is actually in Greek a military term. It's what a general would give to his soldiers. Or it's also a judicial term. It's what a, a judge publicly, when he would give a sentence, he would charge. He says, Timothy, Ephesian church, charge you. Stop this now. And here's the point that we're going to get to is God wants his church. He wants us to deal forcefully with false teaching that is leading people astray, to silence it, to shut it down. And you have a role in this as well. Now, you might be new to RCC. This might be your first Sunday. You might not even be a Christian. I want you to know we're really glad you're here. And you might be reading this, and you grew up in America in the 21st century, and thinking, isn't that unloving? To forcefully silence those people that I disagree with? This goes against everything in our postmodern culture. 
Like, try to shut someone down in a classroom today. No, that's wrong. (laughs) Yeah, you will get stoned. You see, one of the chief tenets of postmodernism, which dominates our Western society today, is that there's no such thing as objective truth. There's only subjective truths. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And we just accept the reality that even though we contradict each other and this world would not make sense if both of us are right, we let it be. You know, the best form of this argument is usually presented in the form of an Indian proverb. There's this proverb of these uh, like five blind men who are stuck in a pit with an elephant. You may have heard this, right? And they can't see. They can only touch and feel. And one blind man touches the trunk of the elephant and says, oh, this must be a big snake. One blind man touches the tusk of the elephant. He's like, no, no, it's not a snake. It's it's a spear. Another blind man touches the tree of the elephant and says, no, this is a tree trunk. Another blind man touches the tail of the elephant. No, says, this is a rope. And then the wise man outside the pit who can see says, you're all right. It's an elephant, just different parts. And one day you'll see the whole picture and it's all true. Essentially, all religions, all truths, are subjective and lead to the same place. So for you to disagree with someone and say, no, it's this or that, is traumatic. But here's a factor that the illustration does not account for. What if the elephant speaks? What if the elephant tells you who he is and what he's like? And that's precisely the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we don't need to blindly grope around trying to figure out what's true. Rather, the elephant has revealed himself to us. I mean, imagine how stupid it would be if the elephant's in the pit, like, I'm an elephant, guys. And they're like, no, no, shush, it's a tusk. Oh, you were all right. No, the elephant is telling you. Jesus Christ, the God-man, has descended into this earth, lived a perfect life, given us his word, and said, obey or run, those who obey, who submit, who receive my righteousness and receive heaven, and those who turn and run and don't make me Savior and Lord, or will be cast away from me for eternity. Friends, we don't need to blindly speculate on what it is. We can just humbly read. And sadly, despite the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ, Our society has grown more and more subjective. The most prized virtue today is tolerance. The only thing that's... uh, Everything is tolerated except intolerance. And many of you maybe here think it's bigoted to insist that certain ideas are wrong or to, to uphold certain theological truths. But the reality is, and I just want to press in just a little bit more on this, if, you, if that's your philosophy, that all paths lead to heaven, if all truth is true for each individual person, you don't actually believe that in your life. Because that philosophy breaks down at some point. It, it, it would destroy society. I mean, just imagine applying this to the sports world. Imagine <laughs> applying this to the NBA. Kevin Durant hits a fadeaway three to win the game. The crowd goes wild. The Nets win the game. And the other team says, well, actually... That was a one-pointer. That's our truth. And you guys lost. It's not three points. I mean, in this participation medal type society we live in, that's how we live. We just argue on what's right or right, and we just right or wrong, we just accept one another's claims without submitting to the higher authority. You see, there's an MBA league office in New York that has declared, this is the objective rule book. These shots are worth three points, these shots are worth two points, and the wizards are destined to stink forever. <laughs> and they've enlisted ambassadors who uphold their objective set of rules. These little guys called referees. And you don't get to argue what's right or wrong. You submit to the authority that's been established. And if we created a subjective world in the NBA, no one would watch it. We'd just be arguing all the time. Welcome to society in America in the 21st century. No order, all chaos. 
In an even greater way, God, you see, the NBA league rules, they change every now and then. God has said, this is my eternal word. Submit to it forever. I never change. Not even a, a dot of the I or a t, cross of the T will change. And we submit to it. Postmodernism, sub, constant subjectivity on objective truths leads to chaos. And it's leading to chaos in this Ephesian church. It's leading to speculation, confusion, and chaos. And that's because false teaching is the carbon monoxide of the church. Carbon monoxide resembles oxygen until you look closely. But it will slowly, silently, and unknowingly suffocate you. So what does this look like? False teaching usually comes in one of two extremes. To the left of the gospel is something called liberalism, and to the right of the gospel is something called legalism. You see, you can be a, a false teacher with your Bible open or a, your Bible closed. Legalism, the more conservative form of heresy, is false teaching with your Bible open. It's a religious form of false teaching. It's adding to the gospel. You see, in 1 Timothy, Paul says that the gospel in 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 through 6 is that there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So the gospel is simply this, Jesus in my place. You brought nothing, Jesus gave everything. You throw yourself on the mercy of Christ and say, I'm helpless, and Jesus says, I take all your sin and give you all my righteousness. You bring nothing to the table before or after your moment of salvation. And every good thing that comes from your life, every ounce of holiness is my spirit coming inside you and changing you to make you more like me until one day I bring you home and you're fully made like me. You have done nothing. See, legalism destroys the beauty of this message of grace as a gift by adding to-dos. It uses the rules of the Bible as a ladder to heaven. Instead of a pre-makeover mirror that shows you your guilt. And that's what these false teachers in Ephesus are doing. They're doing the, the religious form of false teaching, legalism, saying... Follow Jesus, believe in him, and do these actions, and then you'll be saved. But again, by adding to the gospel, you destroy it. The gospel literally means good news because it's good news. It's declarative of something that has already been finished. Not good advice on what now needs to be done. And legalism snatches away the good news part of the gospel. Legalism turns Christianity into Islam. Follow these five pillars and hopefully God will have mercy on you. The gospel is you do nothing, Jesus did everything. And <laughs> religious people hate the gospel. Because at the foot of the cross, you have nothing to boast about. You're a sinner deserving of hell. And Jesus is the only way. And so when religious people hear the gospel, they turn it into legalism so that they, they then have something to boast about. Look how good I care for the poor. Look how much I read my Bible. Look how much I give to the church. Look how much I do this or that. They turn the gospel into a boasting seminar on what they can accomplish. Legalism is false teaching with your Bible open. Now, liberalism is false teaching with your Bible closed. This is the secular or left form of false teaching, and it also takes away from the gospel. Liberalism is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheapening grace. It's believing that the gospel is your get-out-of-jail-free card to do whatever the heck you want to do, but still get heaven. It's thinking that the gospel saves you from the penalty of sin, but not from the power of sin. Liberalism uses Jesus as a savior, but discards him as Lord. In, the, in biblical times, the most common form of liberalistic heresy was something called Gnosticism, where these people would say, yeah, Jesus died for our sins, we believe in him, but I get to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. Things haven't changed much, huh? In 1 Corinthians, Paul's like, this guy is sleeping with his stepmom. Get him out of the church. 
Because his heresy, his liberalism, is destroying the purity of the gospel. That when you come to Jesus, he changes you. You delight to now do his will. You see, Paul says liberalism is nonsense. It's heresy. It needs to be shut down. To use an illustration of these two points, legalism and liberalism, I, there's a member of our church who's in our elder training pathway uh, named Thomas Yoon. And Thomas is a professional chef. He's known to drop off filet mignons at members' houses. So if you wanted a reason to become a member of RCC, I'm just saying free filet mignon really helps. Anyway, Thomas was one of the first executive, youngest executive chefs at a steakhouse uh, chain in California. So he, I mean, this man knows his steaks. And, you know, at the fancy steakhouse, they don't just throw it on the grill. You know, a piece of meat from Walmart. At these fancy steakhouses, they age these steaks at least 30 days. In fact, they set it in the perfect vacuum-sealed temperature where the humidity and the pH level of the meat have to be exactly right so that the enzymes break down the meat and tenderize it and add flavor. And this meat is then inspected by a meat purveyor. If you're looking for a career, I would investigate meat purveyor. <laughs> Just sounds interesting. What do you do? I inspect meat. Starts 100K a year. I don't know that, but anyway. And if you were to order one of these steaks, like a, a piece of Kobe beef, that's Kobe beef, that's just a few ounces, we're talking like minimum $300 for this bad boy. It's just a few bites, but oh, they're glorious bites. If somebody wants to bless their pastor, buy me some Kobe beef. Uh, th that'll come later in First Timothy. It says, share all good things with your pastor. So <clears throat> if you were eating a steak, legalism... It's like taking this pure, 30-day aged, fine cut of meat that costs the sacrifice of this cow and saying, I would like that steak well done with all of the flavor roasted off and give me a bottle of ketchup to dip it in. Liberalism is like taking that steak and just looking at it, smelling it, poking it, but never actually completing the process of putting it in your mouth to taste and consume it. Legalism adds unnecessarily to the gospel. Liberalism takes away from the entire process of the gospel. And I asked Thomas, how would you feel if somebody got a steak well done and dipped it in ketchup? He's like, oh, it's happened. I'm like, seriously, a $200 piece of steak? He's like, yeah. And how does that make you feel? I've never seen him get so fired up. He said, it is offensive to the process, it is offensive to the chef, it is offensive to all things in humanity. I never got him, heard him that upset. Did someone say amen? Yes. Do not get your steak well done. We love you enough to tell you this at RCC. I'm talking to my wife, sweetheart. Stop getting it well done. I, you know, I've been discipling her. She finally gets it medium well. So we're making, it's baby steps, but baby steps. Anyway. Thomas is like, I have lost all respect for that person's palate. That's a waste of money, and it's a waste, even more importantly, of the animal who died to provide this meal for you. I know, it got serious. He was like, you might as well eat chicken. And here's my point, friends. The gospel is an even more eternal aging process. The, the salvation, salvific plan of God is not aged 30 years. It's aged throughout the span of time. Before time even began, God decided, I'm going to give up my son to save these rebellious people. And it didn't cost the sacrifice of a cow. It cost the sacrifice of the spotless son of God. And by adding to the sacrifice of the gospel and saying, you also need to do this, you taint the very gospel that he died for. And by saying, oh, I don't need to actually finish the process of eating it, you taint the, the very gospel he died for, to not just save you from the penalty of sin, but to get sin out of your life because it's ruining your life and ruining our world. And so as a church, friends, we want to eat steak well. Not well done, eat it well. <laughs> By protecting the gospel from legalism and liberalism in the church and around the church. Now, what are some modern examples of this type of false teaching that you and I might encounter today? Remember, legalism is Bible-open heresy, and some of the Bible-open heresy you might experience today is from super-charismatics, 
who say you need to speak in tongues to be saved. If you don't know what speaking in tongues is, I'll, I'll explain it to you after the service. Come on up, I'll, I'll share it with you. But essentially, it's a spiritual act. And they say you need to believe in Jesus, but also do this action, and then God will let you in. That's legalistic heresy. It's putting the emphasis on you, not on God. There's also a super political form of heresy that says if you're really a Christian, then you'll vote for this candidate. That's legalism. You're adding, you're adding rules to the gospel. And I don't know about you, but I don't see Donald Trump's name in this book. I don't see Joe Biden's name in this book. It's legalism. Having an overemphasis on the act of baptism. There are many people who believe you need to be baptized to be saved. You don't just place your faith in Christ and, and turn to him. You also have to do this spiritual action. Again, legalism. It's making baptism an action that gives salvation and taking the emphasis away from Christ. The Roman Catholic Church is ripe with these forms of legalistic heresy. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that communion, as opposed to be an act that celebrates the already done work of Christ, instead, no, 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 communion is an act that actually gives you salvific grace. So you need to confess to a priest, you need to get confirmed, you need to do communion, you need to get baptized, you need to do these actions, and you slowly and slowly get more and more grace until hopefully God lets you in. That's garbage. That's contrary to this book. And if you're Roman Catholic or formerly Roman Catholic, we're going to say, we're so glad you're here, we love you, but what you believe is dumb. And it's not in this at all. Uh, I'm not done with everybody, don't worry, I'm going to hit you all. <laughs> There's also more subtle forms of legalism that you deal with in your own heart, that I deal with in my own heart. Another form of legalistic heresy is maybe what you'll experience tomorrow morning when you say, man, I know I should read my Bible. And you say, I gotta do this or God will be mad at me. That's heresy. That's legalism. You see, we read our Bible because we've already been fully accepted by the work of Christ and we don't have to read it, but we want to. We don't read our Bible for acceptance. We read our Bible from acceptance. I want to know more about this Christ, who is God who died for me. And you can't take me away from my Bible. Legalism is a constant battle the church faces, and we must always fight, fight it. Because the gospel is offensive. It's literally saying that there's nothing you do or can do or need to do to be saved. It's all Jesus and Religious people don't like that. Now, Bible-closed heresy, liberalism, another thing that we're facing. What are some modern forms of this? Just briefly. Another modern form of liberalistic heresy is universalism. This idea that all paths lead to heaven. That is false teaching. Buddhism, Islam, even atheism, if you're a good person, all will lead you to acceptance before God. No, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Him or no one else. You're still in your sin if you don't have Christ. And famous teachers, former pastors like Rob Bell, who teach this philosophy, are heretical. Another form of liberalistic heresy is progressive Christianity which I know you experience with your Christian friends all the time. It's similar to Gnosticism. I love Jesus. I want to receive him as Savior, but I want to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. That's heresy. And it's wrong. When you come to faith in Christ, he's Savior and Lord. And so we submit to him out of joy for what he's already done. And if you say, I believe the gospel, but I'm going to do whatever I want, you haven't really been changed by that gospel. Another form of legalist, liberalistic, liberalistic heresy is the prosperity gospel. This idea that if you come to Jesus and you give a lot of money to the church, man, your bank account is going to be fat. Jesus saved you so you can get your promotion. That is heresy. It turns Jesus into a genie. The last time I checked, he, Jesus had no place to lay his head. He was poor and thought ill of by man. 
but his followers are going to be rich? There are so many prosperity gospels in America today, from Creflo Dollar to Kenneth Copeland, who prostitute the church, who say, give money to my ministry to fund my private jet, and they make them, these members are made poor by enriching these pastors. It's heresy. And our church is called, and I, hear me, I'm not saying you need to go around correcting every church everywhere. Please don't be that guy. But I am saying that Paul is charging us to protect the purity of the gospel from legalism and liberalism in this church, wherever you call your home. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4, the second letter that Paul writes to this Ephesian church, this was still a problem years later. This is what Paul says. And he's talking about us, friends. Now, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And I need you to hear this right now. There is so much false teaching in our world today that itches ears of the world, that fit the passions of idolatrous hearts. You know, the Bible says that Satan appears as an angel of light, and so do false teachers. They seem harmless. They wear a suit. They got big muscles, and they're fun to listen to. But it's false teaching. And it leads to what Paul calls vain discussion. I think a big category for this is what's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And the idea being, we want people to like God. So we gloss him up so he's palatable for the people that are far from God. We change the truth to make him more appealing. It's similar to what Thomas Jefferson did in the 18th century. He took his Bible and cut out all the parts he didn't like about the Bible. And they called it the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Thomas Paine, who was not a Christian, believed, despite not believing the gospel, that a Christian climate was best for society. And moralistic therapeutic deism teaches just a Christian climate, morals, self-help seminars. They teach things like good and bad. They teach moral reward. They even teach divine providence that if you got fired from your job, you just believe in God and he's going to come through for you and you're going to have a better job. I'm not saying any of that is wrong. And that very well may be true. But it's devoid of Christ. The whole point of our message it focuses on Jesus as a teacher instead of Jesus as the Savior. It's what I call story time Christianity, where somebody will come up, close this, and tell you stories that make you feel better about yourself. And this is a form of heresy, it's a form of liberalism. It's an idolatry of sorts, where you, the preaching acquiesces to Human's desire for money, fame, power, success. And it's not a true desire to humbly sit under the Savior of the earth and say, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Some modern examples of this type of weak, self-help seminar type teaching are Joel Osteen. That, there's a book called Jesus Calling that is huge amongst Christians. You might read it by Sarah Young, and it is self-help nonsense. And again, false teaching, again, it's like carbon monoxide. It looks like oxygen, but analyze it next to the Word of God. If the goal of the teaching is to make you feel better about yourself, it's not true gospel teaching. The goal of the teaching should lead you to dependence on Jesus. So, friends, we guard the gospel by fighting against legalism and liberalism. Anything that pulls us away from the gospel. Now, that's guarding the gospel on defense. How do we do it on offense? We embody gospel culture. You see, guarding the gospel is not just having the right doctrine. It's also protecting a gospel culture. Doctrine is what you declare. Culture is what you display. Gospel doctrine is what you can read in a textbook, or you can even read it on our church website, or even hear in some of the sermons. Gospel culture is how you feel when you're in the room. 
Here's what I mean. Look at this picture. This is a church in the 1920s in Portland. If you can't tell, it's a bunch of KKK attire. And do you notice what the poster in the back says? Jesus saves. Would you go to this church? By God's grace, I hope you say no. Obviously, no one would go to this church that's a healthy human being. This church should be shut down immediately. It is evil. It's satanic. But notice, the poster in the background has correct doctrine. Jesus does save. You see, false teaching has spread into how this church is living. There's this false idea that certain races are superior than, than others, and that has trickled down into the hearts of the members and has resulted in the way they treat other people and how they treat the world. Uh, you can take it off. I don't want to see that anymore. And that's what's, that was, a, a form of that was what was happening in the Ephesian church. If you look at verse 7 in chapter 1, Says, uh, Paul says that these false teachers are speaking without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So these false teachers have a dangerous combination. Arrogance and ignorance. By themselves, those aren't horrible, but together it is dangerous. And their arrogant ignorance is creating an unhealthy church culture at this Ephesian church. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul describes what this culture is like. He says their false teaching is leading to a culture of conceit. Quarrels, controversy, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people. That sounds horrible. No one wants to go to a church like that. And this will continue to be an issue for the church. Even many years later, Jesus will rebuke the Ephesian church and say, You guys have forsaken your first love. This is a church devoid of love. And Paul says here in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy that a good gospel preaching, gospel culture church has a different feel. Verse 5. The aim of our charge, Paul says, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the way it should feel when you're at church should be love, pure hearts, clear consciences, not consciences constantly singed by guilt and not enoughs, and a sincere faith. Here's my point. What is taught and what the members believe will always result in the feel or the culture of the church. Unhealthy culture is always the result of unhealthy doctrine believed amongst either the leadership or the members. That church in Portland may have had a doctrinally sound sign, but some false teaching regarding racism had trickled into the hearts of the people and it resulted in how they treated one another. Now, what does this look like here at RCC? Because this happens all the freaking time. There's always false doctrines, false gospels, false truths that are trickling in our minds that change the way we treat one another. For example, if our church or any church ever feels unwelcoming, you ever been to a church and you just feel like, man, this is kind of cold? If the people in the church are clicky, if the people in the church only reach out to those who are their good friends or who have the same skin color as me or have the same interests as me, the problem is a false belief. Romans 15, 7, Paul says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. See, Paul says here that the way you get to desire, <clears throat> the way you become welcoming, the way you get out of your comfort zone and talk to someone you never talked to or someone who's not like you, the way you're hospitable is by believing the gospel. That you were once the outcast. That you were the one, once the person outside the house. You were the one undeserving of grace. But Christ welcomed you. He reached out to you and brought you into his home as a part of his family. And you see, if the people of the church have a culture of being unwelcoming, it's because they don't actually believe the gospel. That they have been welcomed much. False living is always false teaching embodied. False living is always false teaching embodied. One more example. This happens all the time. We talked about last week how the church is a family. Well, families hurt one another all the time, right? They offend each other. They get on each other's nerves. If someone in our church has hurt you, 
hurt your feelings, done something wrong against you, which if it hasn't happened already, it's going to happen. We're all messy. And if for whatever reason you take that hurt and you bring it to somebody else in the church, anyone but the person who's hurt you, and you vent to that person, your friend, you tell them, I can't believe they did that to me. You gossip about them, you slander about, about them under the guise of, I just need someone to process with. That's a gospel belief issue. That's false teaching that you are embodying. And you're contributing to a culture that contradicts the gospel. Colossians 3.13, Paul says, bear with one another, <laughs> deal with one another, basically. If one has a complaint against one another, forgive each other. Why? As the Lord forgave you, so also you must forgive. The idea being, consider, if you're struggling to forgive right now, consider how sinful you are. Consider how gracious and patient God has been with you. God had every right to bail on you. I would have bailed on you. You would have bailed on you. But God said, I'm with you. And he saved you. Consider the great lengths he went to give up his son to save you. Now, if you really believe God has done all of that for you, how can you not forgive somebody who said the wrong thing to you at that wrong time? You just don't believe you've been forgiven much because the person who's been forgiven much forgives much. And if there's a culture of backbiting, gossiping, talking about each other in our church or in any church, the issue is you just don't, we just don't believe the gospel. And here's the truth. This is, what I'm, this is so important, guys. Because the reality is that there are thousands of churches around the world whose doctrinal statements are rock solid, but you step into the life and the culture of that church, and the culture's worse than the Crips. Their staff culture is one of being overworked and yelled at. The Sunday morning's gatherings are cold, and the membership is not a, a, a people of love and unity and kindness and a welcoming spirit like the gospel. And what this does is it undercuts any actual truth they're proclaiming because what they declare does not align with what they're displaying. And here's what I want to say, not here. Not at RCC. What we believe and what we preach matters, but also how we live matters just as much. The aim of our charge is love. And in the same way we rebuke false doctrine, we also rebuke false living. We rebuke an anti-gospel culture. And so if somebody joins our church family and becomes a covenant member, not somebody who's new, but somebody who's you know, become one of us, and they're unwelcoming, whether by volition or just they don't know it, they just come across like a jerk, we're going to tell them. Because if somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus comes in and experiences that unwelcomeness, what do you think that says about the gospel? If somebody's gossiping or slandering, we shut it down right away. We have zero tolerance for it because the purity of the gospel must be established. If somebody's dishonoring leadership, we shut it down. We have zero tolerance for that because we need to make sure we're unified. Now, I'm not saying this because you're going to get crushed and embarrassed. I'm not going to bring you up here and say, this person gossiped. No, we're not doing that. There's a ton of room to mess up here because I need a ton of room of grace. I screw up all the time. My heart is naturally evil and needs the gospel. But we love each other enough to confront each other when we're believing the wrong thing or acting the wrong way. We guard the gospel. Not just for the good of that person, but for the purity of the gospel's proclamation in our city. And so Christian, this is your charge. This is not just for the pastor. Sure, we, the pastors have a unique responsibility to protect the gospel's doctrine and culture. But you are called to join us in protecting the purity of the gospel at RCC. And so how do you do that? Last thing, here's some practical ways we can obey Paul's charge to guard the gospel by confronting false teaching and false living. Here are a couple thoughts, practically. Number one, let the severity of the rebuke match the severity of the offense. Let the severity of the rebuke match the severity of the offense. Basically what this means is if, if somebody just came to Christ last week and they're struggling to figure out the Trinity, can you not get the yardstick out and start beating them right away? Like, can we give some time for people to grow and learn? You don't need to get out your textbook and throw it at them. This is modalism. Okay, yeah, like, sh show them that. But be nice about it. 
let the severity of the rebuke match the severity of the offense. Now, if there's a, some, somebody in our church who's a leader, if there's somebody in our church who has a lot of influence, and they're leading people astray about what they're teaching, or by how they're living, we love them enough to protect them and to protect the church by telling them. And we'll be a little firmer with that person. Secondly, way you can do this, have a gentle confidence. First of all, have a confidence when you confront people with false doctrine or false living. Remember, Paul says, I charge you. Remember, it's a military term. So we don't like say, oh, Bob, I think maybe, oh, I'm not sure. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Like, that's not helping anyone. Confidently, clearly communicate your concern. Love people enough to tell them the truth. A good friend says you're wrong here. But we also, not just confidently, but gently do this. In 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul says, we correct your opponents with gentleness. And we certainly could use a lot more gentleness in our day, don't, couldn't we? We could certainly use a lot more assuming the best in one another, couldn't we? Well, the church is certainly supposed to do that. Not neglect the truth, but... Uh, uphold the truth in a way that is gentle and kind. Remember, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. Number three, this is a good rule of thumb, don't review people on Facebook. Don't review people on Facebook. It just don't work. And you have a, a lot of moms just sicking on you, like they'll, they'll just come at you. Just don't do it. Don't do it on text. If you're going to confront someone, have the courage to tell them to their face in a gentle spirit. And again, let the severity of the rebuke match the severity of the offense. And I, I would just also add, usually discernment blogs are not very discerning. I would just spend my time elsewhere, honestly. Number four, confront in relationship. This is a really big one. The, the worst thing in the world is a church culture of people correcting each other all the time. Ugh, gosh. It's so hard to lead when you have like 10 people saying, you stink at this. Okay, I, I know, all right? Like, give me some grace, all right? My point is, it's always better to respond to somebody you're actually in a relationship with, where you know them, not just some perception or image of them that you have. And let me also say that for every rebuke, you should have 10 encouragements. I'm telling this to myself because, you know, if, if somebody does 10 things right and one thing wrong, I'm usually like, hey, you could really work on this one thing. That's just my natural inclination. I need a lot of grace. But my point is, is that we should be an encouraging people. If you're mostly known for rebuking people, you don't look like Jesus. You look more like Satan, who's the accuser. Jesus was an encourager. So save your rebukes for when you really need them. And let me also add, no one in this room is in danger of being over-encouraged. I don't know anyone here is like, yeah, I'm good, I'm, I'm full, my cup's full. No, like, please, <laughs> tell me, because I'm reminding myself constantly how much I suck. I need you to tell me what things I'm doing good. We have a culture of love and encouragement here. But there are moments where we need to confront false doctrine or false living. Number five, use the Bible. Hey, man, no one cares about your opinion. I'm just gonna be honest. Oh, we care a little bit, but no, we don't. Like, if you got a rebuke, show me a, the Bible verse. If, you, if there's some, I'm teaching some way that's wrong or living some way that's wrong, gently show me the text so that we can listen to the Word of God together. And number six, release all outcomes. Listen, <laughs> this is so contrary to our culture to confront people on theological truths, to confront people on the way they're living. You do you is the mantra of our day. But in the church, Jesus says, you guys do Jesus. And it's gonna be hard. There will be people who respond poorly to your confrontation of, in guarding the gospel. And that might be an opportunity for you to learn, like maybe the way I'm coming across is too harsh. Maybe what I'm saying is not true. There'll be times where you rebuke someone and a year later be like, actually, I think I was wrong. So let's have some humility. And if somebody, also, if somebody responds poorly to your confrontation, a lot of times, you're not the issue, though. The issue is their insecurity. 
The issue is that they don't believe the gospel enough to be able to receive correction. And you are the accuser in their mind. You're not on their team. And they're going to lash out at you because you're delivering what needs to be said. Do not, put, do not measure your faithfulness by the response of the person that you confront. And by God's grace, sometimes we, we present something to a friend and they say, thank you, brother, I do need to grow in that, and God is glorified. Just make sure, and last thing, as you confront and guard the gospel, the culture and the doctrine, make sure, make sure that that person knows you're for them. Because the minute you go to somebody and confront them about the way they're living or what they're believing, and they feel like you're not for them, in the sense that you're coming across harsh, judgmental, unkind, that person is so much less likely to listen to you. But if they can't even deny the fact like this person genuinely cares about me, they are so much more ready to hear what you have to say. Do they know that when you communicate? And we release the outcomes to the Spirit of God. So, church, in conclusion... Let's guard the gospel. Let's protect it. It's the most valuable treasure in all the universe. And if I'm ever to depart from the gospel, either in what I'm teaching or how I'm living, then you need to get rid of me. Now, no pastor's perfect, but there comes a time where leaders need to be removed because they've departed from the gospel. No one is above the gospel. And if any member of our church family departs from the gospel, we are to remove them in love. Paul will tell us in chapter 2, I believe, to hand them over to Satan so that they can repent and turn back to Christ. Let's guard the gospel, friends. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much that salvation comes as a free gift done by Jesus on our behalf. We just open our hands and say, thank you, God. We receive salvation. We receive adoption. We receive all the the glories you have for us in Christ. And we turn away from any heretical teaching or any heretical living, whether it's legalism or liberalism. Protect this church from false doctrines, God. And allow us to make the gospel so pure that unbelievers see the beauty of the gospel and run to experience it and to hear it. And we need your power to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.